You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play by Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it, just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all that on camera, right, John? Sure, I did. All right, because the red light was not on. The podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Oh, you can stick me in some kind of Italian boat because that one is Gondola. Now, from New York. Really? All the big ones are from New York. Your host, Joe Godet. It's still Joel. Yeah, he will not be able to see very well, Cotton. Episode number 190 of Play by Play Cast. Thanks as always for the subscribe, the stream, the download. This is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparations of some of the biggest and best play by play announcers in the business. My name is Joel Godet, the radio and television play by play voice at Ball State University. You can find this pod on social media. Sometimes at PXPCast, I'm at Joel Godet. Shoot me an email if you so choose. J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U. Hopefully, we're getting close to the start of a college football season. I have no idea. Not a clue. Ball State football opened camp this week, Wednesday night. First practice of fall camp. I was at Wednesday's practice and Thursday's practice. I'll be at Friday's practice and Saturday. They're off on Sunday. So there's some sort of semblance of normalcy because the team is practicing. So we're back into a routine. And for that reason, I am given a glimmer of hope that we're going to have college football this fall and the fact that all the conferences are coming out with their schedule plans except for the mid-american conference literally all of the other ones except for the mid-american conference uh that gives me the glimmer of hope but uh fingers crossed we shall see with a month to go or a little bit more depending on the league that you're in before college football season starts the mountain west conference has announced it will play eight conference games this fall plus two non-conference games that decision affects the guest on today's episode bob beeler is his name he is the more than a decade voice of the boise state broncos and the reigning defending idaho state broadcaster of the year before he was at idaho before he was at boise state in idaho on the blue turf, the Smurf turf, which we don't actually talk about on this podcast. Uh, Before he was there, he was at the University of Massachusetts. Before there, he was at Bucknell. Before that, he was in minor league baseball in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And before that, he was in college at the University of Georgia. We're going to start a little differently than we do on most episodes because when we finished this podcast, Bob gave me a really good story, anecdote, of when he was at UMass and he took a trip to the Bahamas with his basketball team and how things can sometimes go a little awry on a broadcast and how you deal with that. Um, We did that at the back end once we were done recording, Um, but it's a really great story and I wanted to insert it back into the podcast. So before we get into the nitty gritty, uh, I want to begin with Bob Beeler's exploits of broadcasting in the Bahamas. And before I give you his story, Ball State has also done the Bahamas trip from a basketball standpoint. Um, You stay at Atlantis. It's a marvelous resort. And then you go play at uh, an arena in town. 
And sometimes the teams are better than others, and sometimes the teams are not. Uh, UNC famously lost a game in the Bahamas uh, not that many years ago. Uh, DeAndre Ayton was on one of the teams in the Bahamas uh, when Ball State was down there as well. Yes, that DeAndre Ayton, I don't think he played in every game, but like there, he was attached to one of the teams uh, that was in circulation for U.S. collegiate teams to play when they took trips down to the Bahamas. Um, but it was like, you know, like the quality of the games could be really good and they, they might not be. And uh, the first game when Ball State got there, there were like three guys five minutes before tip on the opposing team. And then like everybody else just kind of rolls in. It's like Ball State was there as a Division One basketball team, and the other team was like the guys at the Y who had just called up their friends and were like, yo, you want to hoop? Uh, and some, some dudes had shown up. Um, it was professionally run in that, like, there was a box score. There was a guy keeping stats, you know, everything like you would expect in any other game. But that is where the funny turn comes in for, for the Ball State experience in the Bahamas because there was a player on the Bahamian team named Mark St. Fort. He played at Savannah State in the States. Only problem is there was a slight typo in the box score. This was not the fault of anybody. I just imagined it was a typo. But the Cardinals that day played a team whose leading scorer was, yes, Mark St. Fart. And... (laughs) And that is a name that has lived on in infamy uh, between myself and our SID uh, over the last five or six years ever since Ball State has come back from playing in the Bahamas. So that is my story of basketball in the Bahamas. I also golfed on that trip and almost threw my driver in the ocean. Didn't go well. A great time, though. The whole thing, on the whole, was a blast. Uh, Bob Beeler had a good Bahamas story. And we begin with that, then we'll get into the broadcast stuff. Travis Ford's first year at UMass, he wanted to have one of those foreign tours because we could. Sure. Because you're allowed to have them every four years. And he got hired, I guess, in April, would be my guess. You don't have a lot of time to raise a lot of money. So they raise enough money to go in August to the Bahamas. It's a close trip from Massachusetts, relatively speaking. We stayed at the Atlantis Hotel. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And I was fortunate that they wanted to broadcast the three games or whatever, four games. No, I think it was five games now that I think about it. And we're going to play in the Bahamas. It was hard to order a phone line to get the state of Massachusetts to be able to pay a company in the Bahamas in advance for two phone lines because it was going to be played at two different venues probably took me two months to get the phone lines and get the check and, you know, to do it. But we did. So we show up down there the first night. The team that we were going to play, the game was supposed to start at 7, and at 7 o'clock, excuse me, at 6.45, we come on the air, they're not there. Okay? And I don't have a roster either. And the place they put the phone line was in the corner of the gym upstairs because that's where there was power and that was where they had it. So I'm as far away from the court as possible and I'm doing the game solo. They only decided to send me and our SID, what didn't go because 
his wife was going to have a baby. So he was going to listen to the broadcast and then call me for the information. So they're not there at 645. They start trickling in at seven. And there's nobody. There's no roster. Nobody's up near me. Uh, they have no uniforms. They're just going to play this team. We're going to play called the crime stoppers. They were off duty police officers. We were told. So you got to call a game. And so what are you going to do with names and keep them straight? So one guy had a metal lock lemon Jersey. So he was lemon, at least on our broadcast. One guy had a Tracy McGrady Jersey. So he became McGrady. Um, then I used colors because there are last names with colors. Some guy had a green shirt on, so I called him green. Uh, somebody had a brown shirt on, so he was brown. And somebody had a white T-shirt, and he was white. So I had white passing the McGrady back to green over to brown. Brown lays it up. It's in basket for the whatever the crime stoppers. So do this whole game, and I was able to keep stats and, you know, fouls. And, you know, they had about eight or nine players. And at the end of the game, I sign off. Call the SID and he says, I think I followed you pretty well. I think I got it. He said, there's just one thing I didn't get. I didn't get first names for anybody on the Bahamas team. <laughs> and I start laughing. And he goes, why are you laughing? I says, well, you can feel free to do what I did. I made up the last names. You can make up the first names. That's so good. And then the next four games, we had rosters, and, and it was it was a more professional setup the next four times. But the first night, it was like, what do you do? All right, so it wasn't Mark saying fart, but it was certainly Metal Arc Lemon. <laughs> that's, that's, I, what was amazing, like, he did a whole broadcasting, I never had to think of a name for blue or green. It's pretty good, I mean, the, the ability to craft any backstory you wanted, just fantastic. I would have freaked the heck out. I don't know what I would have done. And that's it. I mean, I probably would have done the same thing, but I, I actually, I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't have been as inventive. Like I, I would have just been up front and said, I don't know who these dudes are. Um, and, and gone from there. Probably what would have happened. Uh, a lot to get to beyond that with Bob Beeler today though, about broadcasting, about his path, uh, and, and about the way he does what he does here on PXP cast episode 190 with the voice of the Boise state Broncos. What I was going to say, I don't know if this is true, but I think I may be the only person to have called a hundred football games for three division one football programs. Oh, wow. I don't know that, but I, I have a lot of people that I can come up with that have done two. You know, I can't find a lot of anybody who's done Hundred or more games at three places. It's probably an. Do you know of anybody? I, not that I can. Like, it's got to be an exclusive club if there is. <laughs> right. Like somebody thought Stan Cotton at uh, Wake Forest, but he wasn't at Marshall long enough. He was at Marshall like four years. There's no way he got to 100 games in four years. No. I'm, I'm talking football. Um, but you know, like a lot of people have been at two and could could do it for two but not three. Now, maybe somebody retired that you don't look at, but if I'm looking down the list of people, so, and I say division one, and I'm including FCS sure. with that, because I had two FCS places before coming here. So what was the, um, what, what's been the, the driving force behind your 
career starting in I mean growing up in California and then saying you know I'm going to move across the country and go to school at UGA and then obviously moving your way up the east coast and then back out west well I started broadcasting when I was in high school we had a television station at the high school I went to in Stockton and I did broadcasts of just about every sport you could imagine the the we did the games and then it was replayed the next night on cable television. So the games weren't on live, they were done recorded. And I think that probably actually helped the audience because I think all the people who played wanted to see themselves <laughs> the next day, see what was said about them, if they did well, you know, revel in the fact that, you know, they threw two touchdown passes or, you know, got 15 points in the game or whatever. Um, I found at a very quick age that if I wanted to do something in sports, it was certainly not going to be to play because I wasn't very good. It wasn't very athletic. So when I was a freshman coming to high school, this program was available and, you know, you just kind of gravitate to something. And then the more success you have, you know, the more you want to do it. Uh, when I was a junior, our high school made it to the Northern California state basketball playoffs that they had at the Oakland Coliseum, the Warriors arena. And, the radio station wanted to carry the games and the station manager had known that I had done the games on um, the cable TV. So I get this call the week of the game, wanting to know if I'd go down to Oakland and do the games for them. And, you know, it was $35 a game. We ended up playing, well, we played three, one was a consolation, but uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, I come back in and the guy said, you did a good enough job. He said, how would you like to do our game of the week? So as a senior in high school, I did the game of the week for the league in, in the Stockton, California area. So, you know, when you just move uh, Georgia, I wanted to go to a place that uh, had a good broadcasting department. I wanted to go to a place with big time athletics and I wanted to see something different. And it just seemed like a tremendous opportunity. And, and if you're saying, what are some of the best decisions you've ever made in your life hmm. going to UGA, I would put as one of the top two or three decisions that, that I've ever made. And then you, you go there and I had the opportunity to call women's basketball and baseball. And I work with, you know, the, the media relations department with, you know, some of the other sports football included and put myself in a position that sometimes you get lucky, but the announcer at Chattanooga and minor leagues was looking for, was getting a job at the Citadel and I had sent in for the job at the Citadel. And I think that when they wanted the guy to go in July to set things up for the coming season, they probably said to the Citadel, well, who did you have apply that might be somebody that could fill out the season? So I get this call from the Chattanooga lookouts and then I finish out the 85 season. And then I do the 86 season and decide that, you know, I kind of like, I love baseball, but I kind of like the lifestyle of college better. And I applied for the job at Bucknell and got that. So moved north to a little town in Pennsylvania and was there in 1986 and stayed for 13 years. What's it like for, for you? I mean, we've had conversations on this podcast all the time with people in different stages of their career that have that, like, am I ever going to am I ever going to get that next break and that next <laughs> step mentality? Um, and you're at Bucknell for more than a decade. You're, you, you then go to UMass, which is riding high off the Calipari years, and you're there for almost a decade um, before you get to, to Boise State, which um, is in your current spot. 
what was the thought process for you of um, driving forward, particularly at Bucknell, when you're in a, a small town in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, of um, am I ever going to get that next break? And I thought that. I, I thought maybe that I would be there for my entire career. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. Tremendous people. But, you know, you, sometimes you'd like to be in a little bit bigger place with a little more prestige as far as the games go. Um, you'd send things in and you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't either get an interview or maybe if you did, you wouldn't get the job. Uh, didn't have a whole lot of nibbles in 13 years. And I thought, do I want to move to a bigger market maybe try to do updates, maybe try to find my way onto the sidelines and see if I could, you know, work my way up. This obviously is all, you know, pre-internet, you know, pre-ESPN3. This is, you know, I was there from 1986 to, to leaving UMass in the fall of 99. Mm. Um, but I decided that I liked calling play-by-play too much to leave. Yep. And I was in, I, I've enjoyed every place I've been and I have not left any of the places I've been because I haven't enjoyed it. I thought the next opportunity would be a better opportunity, maybe something to challenge you. You know, you, you mentioned 13 years at one, nine at the other. I've been 12, 12 here now in, in Boise. And it, it's it, to me, doing it, being involved with teams, calling the games was more important than hopscotching around. You know, even if the job didn't come, I have to tell you a funny story about the job at UMass. I'd gone on a couple interviews when I was at at uh, at Bucknell and didn't get the jobs, obviously. And I said to somebody, I said something about, you know, the interview. He goes, oh, you'll know when you're going to get the job offered. And I mean, what do you mean you'll know when they're going to offer you the job in the interview? They go, trust me, you'll know. So I go up to UMass for the interview and I'm there in the morning and I'm interviewing the people at the radio station and people at the athletic department. And I, you know, I think the interview is going well, but I thought interviews have gone well before and then I got the job. And then in the afternoon, questions start coming. When can you get here? <laughs> can you get out of your job at Bucknell? Um, how long will it take you to move? <laughs> you know, and it's like, that guy was right. You are <laughs> going to know when you're going to get the job because the, the questions turned and, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to care how long it's going to take you to move. If, you know, if you, uh, if they're not going to offer you the job. So, and I might add that the interviews took place in mid August, the, 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 the opening at UMass came very late. So it mm. wasn't as easy to move, you know, to get out of something, as it would maybe if the you know if somebody left at the end of the college basketball season in in March and you start searching and you talk in May, it's easy for somebody to get there. But that year, um, the guy that was going to replace me at Bucknell couldn't get there in time. UMass did not play Labor Day weekend, so I called the first football game at Bucknell <laughs> as sort of a, a swan song. Uh, they they honored me at halftime. It was very nice. And then the next week, the second week of September, I I did UMass's first. Day. So how do you get prepped for the UMass season? Um, as you're always as you're also getting prepped for week one of the Bucknell season. I have to admit that there were probably three priorities, <laughs> and preparing for the Bucknell Morgan State game was probably the lowest of the priorities. The physically moving. Because I had to literally move the the movers took my stuff the Friday before the Saturday game at Bucknell, 
And then I was kind of sleeping on somebody's uh, couch the, the, you know, the last night or two I was in Lewisburg and then trying to get ready for UMass and, and then obviously doing the, the last game you know, for Bucknell because it was within, by the time they offered me the job, it was within the two weeks. And I, you know, they had been so good to me for 13 years. There was no way I was going to leave them <laughs> high and dry. The guy that was doing the color for me that year was Chris Carlin, who's with WFAN. Oh, wow. Excuse me. He was with WFAN. He's now with ESPN Radio in New York. And Chris was going to end up doing the play-by-play because he was doing the color for me at the time. And his sister was getting married that weekend, and he wasn't going to be on the first game anyway. So it just seemed like a, a natural thing to, you know, call that game against Morgan State. And then, you know, leave Sunday to come up to Massachusetts. And then I did their first game the next Saturday, which was a home game against New Hampshire. What was 1990s Chris Carlin like? 99? Yeah. Yeah, and Chris and I had done, we'd gotten to be really good friends. Chris and I had done minor league baseball in Williamsport, Pennsylvania in 94 together. So Chris and I go way back. And a lot of fun. Guy who prepares um a pro's pro i would say and that's why i think he's done so well in 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 new york and does a tremendous job with the rutgers games but uh it, you know you, you look at people that you knew when you both were youngsters in this business and i was a little obviously older than he was but uh still very early in our career we, you know we did the games in uh in williamsport uh you know bus league new york penn league short yeah. season um remember a couple it's funny i don't really remember the games but we did a game in elmira one night and the press box in elmira was really small as far as the radio booth and one person could sit and the other person had to stand behind the person okay so we did it that whoever's inning was play by play that person sat and whoever did color they were standing behind at the end of the game they turn out most of the lights at Elmira at this stadium as we're on the post game show. So the first night we're there, every single moth, oh boy. probably in a three county area, decides it wants to come to the press box because there are lights in the press box. So we get infested with moths. So night two we're there to show you how smart we are. The game ends, and in order to shut the window, which is glass, you could be behind glass and see or you could leave it open. And since it was warm, you wanted to leave it open. I was sitting in the ninth inning. So I pick up our Comrex unit and kind of slide it back a little bit. Chris skillfully closes the glass press box window. And now we've got every moth in front of us, but at least they're not on us. So we were more prepared for night two. And then another night we were in Auburn and we had to get our butts and our equipment off the top of a metal press box when a lightning storm decided it wanted to come. Those are the uniquely minor league baseball broadcasting stories that you just yeah. don't get anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. And I think for people that don't do things like minor league, high school, um, I, I think you miss out on it. You know, you miss out on having to innovate, having to figure out how you could, you know, now, fortunately, for a lot of people, you can do things on wireless stuff. But you'd have to try to string a phone a phone cable to wherever you wanted to do it. You'd try to have to tape it down so that somebody wouldn't trip over it or mm-hmm. kick you out. Um, so, yeah, you learn a lot. And then sometimes the actual game is secondary because you got to get on the air first. Yeah, I, I once got locked in a baseball stadium 
um, when, I, when I was working in the Florida State League, uh, the entire front office had left and the clubhouse was outside the fence. So they had locked the outdoor, the outfield fence. Um, so I had to throw my radio equipment over the fence. A player caught it and then I had to scale the outfield fence to get out of the ballpark. Um, mm-hmm. That was my only, my only way to go home at <laughs> well, night. Very similar. We were the same thing with Chris and I. Chris and I had some good stories. Maybe we should write a book on our experiences <laughs> that year. Um, we're in Utica one night. I think it's the actually the opening game in Utica. And the bus leaves without us because they decided not to shower. And it's the first game of the season. They're not thinking about us. Yep. We see the bus driving away and we figure, okay, we'll get somebody to, you know, take us back. Nobody that worked for the Utica team was willing to take us to the team hotel. <laughs> Nobody, nobody. So we call a taxi and we're sitting outside in front of the stadium. The gates are locked. We're outside with our equipment and we're waiting for the, fortunately it was not a getaway day and we're waiting for this taxi to show up. And it probably takes him 20 minutes. And Utica is not a very big city. And the guy looks at us. There's a girl in the front seat and then we didn't want to go back to the Howard Johnson's. And he says to us, do you mind if I take whatever the woman's name is home first? Well, we had a ride. We just both looked at each other and go, yeah, I guess that'd be all right. <laughs> I mean, we were afraid he was going to leave and you know, all of a sudden we'd be back in the dark trying to get another cab. But yeah, it's, they're just some priceless things that, that go on in sports casting. <laughs> the, the, the books I'm, uh, are endless. Uh, I'm, I'm certain. Um, when you uh, got the Boise state job, and you made that leap in your career. Uh, the guy that you replaced, um, Paul Schneider, had been there for 35 years. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it like coming into a situation where you are replacing a a person who a large segment of the fan base may have – that's the, vo- the only voice they've ever known, um, mm-hmm. and in, ingratiating yourself to uh, – you know, or, or getting a, a fan base to, to accept a new voice? Well, I think the first thing that I want to say is that Paul J. couldn't have been more gracious. Um, We were with a different station when I first got there. I'm I'm with the station that he was on now, but at the time there had been a rights change. But uh, Paul J. made things very easy for me by being as professional and as friendly. And I think other people took their cues from that, which, you know, I, I really, really thank him for being the person who he is to, you know, basically, you know, I don't want to welcome me to town. Um, I think the biggest thing when you're trying to come into a place and and you have somebody that is so well-liked and has been there for so long is number one, I think you got to be yourself. I think if you try to be somebody else, you're not going to be successful. And then number two, I think it's something I really tried to do. I tried to meet as many people as possible so that I could be a person, not just somebody who comes through the voice. And I must have the month of August, I'll bet you I spoke at 20 service clubs, like a Rotary Club or the Lions Club or, you know, basically groups of, you know, 20 to 50 people so that they would see me, they would get to know me, not just, okay, here's somebody coming in. And I was coming in from out of the market. Nobody would have known who I was, um, you know, before being picked for the job at Boise state. And then, you know, just do the best job you can. And I like to think that, you know, if you're, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people that, you know, 
thinks a particular announcer is better than somebody else. And that's obviously everybody's opinion or who's your, your cup of tea, but um, just do the best job you can be as friendly with people so that people know, you know, that you're a person, not just some voice that's coming through their radio. And, um, you know, I, I hope people here have thought that, you know, I've done a good job and, you know, I've been fortunate too, that, you know, you sound better when your teams are good. And of the first 53 football games I did here at Boise state, which coincided with the first, or excuse me, the four years that Kellen Moore played here, we were 50 and three. So um, you sound a lot better when your team's scoring touchdowns than when the other team's scoring touchdowns. Uh, how did you learn about, I mean, I'm sure this all kind of went hand in hand, but like, how do you learn about, a tradition and a community and a team and a history um, because obviously like you're not from Lewisburg and you weren't from Amherst and you're not from Boise and none of those are anywhere close to each other. Um, so you're, you're kind of having to uh, introduce yourself to a new team and a new program every time you're doing it um, and gain that knowledge that um, the local fan has. Uh, what's the best ways that you have found to, kind of brush up on history um, to be on the air. Listen, talk to people. Don't pretend that you know more than they know because they know more than you do because they lived it. They've been there. Um, I feel real good about anything I've seen at any place I've ever been. But I think talking to former players, talking to coaches, talking to you know coaches maybe at our place at Boise State, a number of them like Coach Harson played at Boise State. Uh, talking to maybe administrators that, you know, have been around a long time, talking to, you know, Paul Jay, who called games for 35 years, uh, Jeff Cades, who was our program director and talk show host, played at Boise State in the 80s and then has been on talk radio here, listening to their stories. Tom Scott is a guy who I would, if you say who's the historian of Boise, it's Tom Scott, used to be in media, now does some, you know, commentary on the radio. Um, read as much as you can. And know, and know that even if you're doing that, there's no way you're going to know as much as somebody that actually was there. Somebody that went to the, you know, classic game in 1975. Right. You know, there's no way you're going to know it. Try to try to understand what happened, why it was important. But, you know, I, I've learned things all the time about something that happened at Boise State or when I was at UMass or at Bucknell. And, you know, find out as much as you can about it. And then you can incorporate it into your broadcast. It's just, it's like preparation. It's like, it's like learning history. I always loved history in school. And I think when you're a play by play announcer, history is what you're a lot of times talking about, but you're talking about the history of a particular player where they've come from and what their backstory is. And then, you know, the history of, of the teams or the rivalries. Let's talk a little bit about the, the actual art of play by play. Um, I've I've read where you have talked about it as a lost art on radio in particular. Um, mm-hmm. What what is uh, what's good quality play by play to you on the radio? I think first of all, it's the basics: time, score, situation, making people feel like they're there. That that's more going to art. That's going to the building the excitement, letting people know what's happening. Having fun. If you're not having fun at the game, why would somebody be having fun listening to you? Uh, I always think when I'm doing games with my analysts, you know, first thing on a professional order so that you can kind of understand what's happening, you know, we should be having the kind of time that you and your buddy would have if you were sitting in the stands at the game. 
And if we're not enjoying ourselves, and I mean, and I mean, enjoying ourselves, you know, there are some crushing defeats that, you know, at the end of the game, you don't enjoy, you know, the result and the outcome, but throughout the course of the game, it's fun to be at the game. And I think coming out of this uh, COVID-19, I think people are going to have a greater appreciation of being at games live than they did. You'd seen, you know, in a lot of places, in a lot of sports attendance dwindle a little bit because it's so easy to watch games on TV. Your refrigerator is four feet from your couch. Your bathroom is maybe 10 feet from your couch. You don't have to find a place to park, but I think people are going to enjoy coming to the games more, you know, when we get back to what, you know, what maybe used to be normal. uh, And I think they'll enjoy it more, but I think telling people what's happening, making sure they understand, you know, what's going on. They can, you know, follow what's going on and then having a good time to me, if you can do those things, I think those are the most important things in painting a picture to somebody that can't see. What separates the, the good from the great in your eyes? <laughs> um, probably just that little bit of flair or a little bit of, Maybe somebody that you know gets identified with a with a certain team that you know people are passionate about the team, so then they become passionate about the you know the broadcaster as well. Um, I don't know. You'd have to almost ask somebody like if you said name your favorite your ten favorite announcers of all time, and I don't know how many guys Joel have you done the podcast with? Uh, this will be one ninety. <laughs> okay, so nearly 200 people. I'll bet you everybody's 10 would be different. Yeah. Because, first of all, there'd be local people that you love. Like, I grew up in Northern California, and on an all-sport basis, I thought Bill King was the best. And especially for football and basketball. But if you didn't live in the Bay Area, you might not even know who Bill King was. You know, and somebody else may pick somebody else that me growing up in, in Northern California would have no idea who they were talking about. So I think there are plenty of people who, you know, do it extremely well. And, and I think that, you know, again, I think you got to be yourself and, you know, somebody likes a different style and somebody else likes this style. Um, but I, I think that if you're looking at it, there's a greater demarcation between somebody who's pretty good and then somebody who struggles. And usually somebody who struggles, it's you can't tell what's happening. You don't know the time. You don't know the scores. A lot of those things are basics. I wasn't going to ask you to name 10, um, but uh, you, you went ahead and said Bill King. Um, so I guess we can start there. What, what about Bill King as a child um, caught your attention? His attention to detail, number one, he left no stone unturned. I thought his vocabulary was unbelievable. I mean, he used words on the broadcast that forced me to go to the dictionary to see exactly what they meant. Um, um, I think his enthusiasm, I mean, he, he had he had a lot of good Raider teams that he broadcast for. And then I thought his basketball was unbelievable. Uh, I mean, I think he's the best guy ever to call basketball on radio, in my opinion, that I've listened to. Uh, but he had some warrior teams that probably weren't, you know, the most fun to have to call. They, they mm-hmm. you know, he wanted they won a championship, but there were a lot of lean years when he did the games. And then later he went on to do to do the A's. Uh, and they had some very good teams for the A's. But I moved out of North Northern California for the most part for most of his career when he was with the A's. But I don't know. He just there was just something about his descriptions 
his vocabulary and his enthusiasm and excitement that I, I don't know. I, I think he checked all the boxes. What do you still do? Um, I mean, you've been doing this since, you know, the, the early eighties. Um, what do you still do today uh, to improve day in and day out and make sure that, you know, hopefully week one, 2020 boys <laughs> state football um, is, uh, you know, not as good as week two and, and week three is better than week two. How do you get better day yeah. in and day out? Well, I think first of all, you got to listen to yourself. And that's one of the things I did during the, the quarantine is I went back and did more listening to my broadcast. I was furloughed for 90 days from the radio station from a talk show. So I had a lot of time on my hands. So I went back and listened to more games start to finish this year than I've ever done. What'd you learn? In the past in the off season, I'd listen to them, but you might have time to do a quarter here and then three days later do another quarter and then, you know, another quarter or something. But I was able to listen to whole games, write things down and, one of the things that we had talked about last year, Pete Cavender and I, Pete's done the color for 10, excuse me, 11 of the 12 years that I've been here. Only the first year was somebody different. So we kind of know each other as far as, you know, when to talk and when to shut up about as well as you can learn when you've done a game with somebody for that long. And we've always thought that, like you said, you're going to be better at week two than you are week one, week three than week two, generally speaking, that and this is pre-COVID, we were talking about it, that, you know, the teams have these scrimmages during the season. And I don't, I mean, usually they're closed scrimmages. But we were going to ask to not broadcast it for air, but broadcast it for ourselves. Yeah. Just just for a timing thing. It's sort of like, I know it's like riding a bike. You can, you know, usually jump back on and do pretty well. But I think we would be better in week one if we had had – you know, even though it's not a real game and they stop and start when there's a scrimmage, you still have people tackling, you have people running, you have people throwing, you know, that I think we would be better in week one if we had a game that, that nobody, that nobody did. Um, one of the things when I got the job at Boise State, they, they used to have open to the public. They don't now, but they used to have like a summer scrimmage. And I guess in some years they broadcast it and some years they didn't. Well, this is going to be the first broadcast for everybody at the station. People run on the board, people doing, you know, the engineering in the booth, myself, the color guy. And I suggested that we didn't air it because I said, let's not let somebody hear us on a practice, basically, mm. when we haven't even tried everything out. I said, let's let's do everything as simple as like even feeding the satellite to get it to the other stations. You know, if there's a glitch on the first game, it's a problem, you know. So we did everything as a dry run. And I know we were better week one for that first game with Idaho State. And I'm not just talking Bob Beeler. I'm talking everybody, color, sideline, you know, producer, uh, board op. Everybody was sharper having done the, 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 the practice game that nobody heard but us. So I think that's something that – you know, if, if it looks like we're going to have a season, I think Pete and I will definitely try to do one of those scrimmages that just the two of us will hear. What did you learn from listening back to those full games in that way for the first time in a while? I would say that you're never as good as you think you are when you've had a good game, and you're never as bad as you are when you think you haven't done as well. <laughs> yeah. That when you listen to it, you know, it's – 
you know, it's never as extreme. And I also think when you listen back, you always leave yourself with, oh, I wish I would have said this, or I wish I would have, you know, yeah, easy, easy to do to say, oh, I should have seen this, or I should have been on top of that, or I should have had that, that point. <clears throat> but I think just little things and the things that I ended up writing down for myself were things like, and especially when you get caught up in a hurry up offense, let's say, where if your partner says something, maybe you get rushed because the snap happens and all you get is second and three, but you didn't have time to get from the 33 yard line. Right. And I think it was more, you control the action. Don't let the action control you. Even if it takes a second more to say second and three from the 33, do it. And then if you have to pick up the, you know, the, the throw or whatever, you know, get the information out you want and don't worry about hurrying. I think maybe would be one of the takes that I would have. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good, good insight and something that I've, I've caught with myself on many an occasion too. So um, I'm glad you pointed that one out uh, in particular. Um, last thing I'll, I'll let you go on this note is just in this era of the, the way that things could be going forward. Um, <laughs> What do you anticipate will be difficult, different, um, intriguing about broadcasting games in a COVID era? Well, first of all, I think I, I think people, because of what Major League Baseball has done, I think people are going to be able to be at their home games. I think that'll be a given. I know at Boise State they're talking about putting plexiglass between you know people's spots in the booth. So I, I think if there's football at home, we're not going to have an issue. You know, travel, if you're the road team, um, what do they have in the way of booths? Are they going to let people in? Mm. Are we going to have to call the game off of a monitor? Um, I would think looking at how the baseball guys are doing it from home and maybe the NBA guys as well, and I, we have to do remote broadcast. I'm going to call several of those people for some tips and advice. <laughs> but it sounds like they've given them more than one monitor to look at like the whole field on one, the, whatever the raw feed is from the television network that's filming it, maybe something else. So you could look at two or three things. Right. I think if you're trying to do it much like you do as a kid at home on your couch, you know, when you're 13 years old recording into a tape recorder, that would be Bob Beeler back in the mid to late seventies. You can only see what they show you. And I think the biggest thing, if, if you only got the one shot, you know, whatever they showed on the telecast, I think at some points knowing what yard line somebody on would be difficult. Yeah. Where if they gave you more than one monitor look, I think maybe it would be, you know, one where maybe they give you an all 22 and one where they give you something else. I don't know. I think it would be difficult period, but I think that would be it. And the other thing Listening to games on radio, at least for baseball, the audio makes the broadcast. You would really not know if it's a home game or an away game. In other words, whether the announcers are there or watching off the monitor, they've really done a good job, uh, a better job than I thought people would actually do. Um, but if you don't have that, if you're sitting in an antiseptic studio having to do it and they can't get you, you know, that sound, and I don't mean that sound has to be like 
piped in crowd noise, but maybe the whistle or the tackle or whatever they're popping into the stadium, if they can't give you that, I think it would make for a very dull broadcast. We're doing recreation games in 2020. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much of a MASH fan you were, but uh, I remember when there was a scene in MASH where Frank Burns would listen on Armed Forces Network and know who won the game. And then the next day when it was on at a better time, he would bet people. And they <laughs> caught him on it. So Hawkeye and... I think it was Trapper was at the time. Maybe it could have been Honeycutt. But they made up this fake broadcast where they had the other team winning, and they had, like, Klinger on the crack of the bat and different things. And I always remember that as a recreation. That's thing. so good. It would, be, it would be difficult. I mean, hey, you do what you have to do. I'm hoping that we have games, and I'm hoping we'll be allowed to call the games in person, but if not, I've watched people in the last couple of weeks that have really done a nice job with, you know, with the remote games. Yep. And I'm hoping that's not going to have to be me. Bob, how do people find you on social media if they want to uh, follow you and, and get some more of you? BSU Bob and uh, that for Boise State University, and then obviously Bob Bob, and you know we you can get. The broadcasts through, uh, you know, Boise State the website if somebody wanted to listen. And hopefully we're going to have another really good season. I mean, I've been blessed here at Boise State with both football, basketball, great people to work with, great teams, great community support. Um, that may be the thing that of the three schools I've been at, UMass and Bucknell were, were smaller in scope. And it's especially in Massachusetts with all the pros there. Yeah. They were the team. It is it is fun being with the team that everybody cares about in this state, and that's Boise State. And you know, I'm looking for another big year for both teams. And and I've it's been you talk about good decisions going to Georgia as a student being a good decision. Taking this job 12 years ago was a great decision. I've enjoyed it, and I hope the people have enjoyed having me here. I will say too, uh, BSU is the official with the NCAA for Boise. But if you go to bsu.edu, that gets you to Ball State. Right. And let's hope both BSUs have good years this year, right? Yeah, the red absolutely. one and the blue one, right? Abs absolutely. That would be your lips to God's ears. All right, that's Bob Beeler joining us here on episode 190 of Play by Playcast. He said it a couple of times in there as the role of the play by play broadcaster being a presenter. And it's an interesting term. And it's interesting both because I like the way he framed it. But next week's guest on this podcast said the exact same thing. I don't think they know each other. They definitely didn't get into cahoots about how they were going to do this. I just found it interesting that two guys back-to-back -back weeks for this podcast have framed the job of a play-by-play -play broadcaster as a presenter for similar reasons. John Anik is the voice of UFC. I have wanted to have him on this podcast for the longest time and finally... It's time. I can't, I can't Bruce Buffer it. Uh, not Bruce Buffer. Yeah, Bruce Buffer. Michael Buffer's the boxing one. I, I can't Bruce Buffer it. It's time, but it is time. Next week, John Anik, our guest on PXP Cast. Until then, my name is Joel Gadette, the music is Marshmallow, and we are out. That will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.